0: Welcome to episode number nine in the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast from COECT, the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma. COECT provides carers of traumatised children and supporting professionals with effective strategies to deal with challenging behaviours. Our aim is to achieve the best possible outcomes for families. I'm Serena Gay, your host, and today I'm talking to Baza about what parents can expect to happen when they need to go to the family courts for whatever reasons, and we'll be discussing how the process works. Baza has been a social worker since 2012, and her work has always revolved around making decisions on children's futures. She does this through the family court. Baza's also a therapeutic lead for the NATP, which is part of COECT, where she helps advise parents on how to deal with children whose behaviour is difficult for them to manage. Baza is the single adopter of two children. Somehow, over the last 12 years, she's also found the time to run a charity in Devon called Plymouth Hope. The charity helps refugees and asylum seekers, principally through giving them access to sports like football, but it also includes youth and women's projects. At the charity's core, is addressing the impact of trauma on families and children, something that Baza is profoundly interested in. So welcome to the podcast, Baza, it's good to have you on. Thank you for having me, I'm delighted to be here. Well, can we first talk a little bit about you? You're a professional social worker and also a a single parent of two adopted children. What have you
1: learnt from the experience of adopting that's helped you in your professional working life? I think really that's a huge question because the impact of um, adopting on my practice has been huge. um, Just so significant, I would have to say that um, having adopted was transformative for my practice because what it meant was I had a real insight into a how traumatized children function in a family setting and how trauma manifests. But it also meant that I was much more able to be empathic and sympathetic to foster carers Birth parents and adopters in my working life, because I really understood the struggles that they were all facing and the children were facing in a much better way once I had my own children who were adopted. Um, so I can't I can't highlight that enough really, because it was so transformative and a lot of the reading and learning I did to be a mum has resonated massively through my work as well. So it's, it's, um, there's a very symbiotic relationship between my home life and my work life, and I, I'm boundaried with that, but it is very important that my own personal experiences have shaped my work. Now I can see how important that must be. So now you your work is,
0: is principally focused on the family courts, Can you talk us through why people need recourse to the family court? Um, Perhaps you could mention, I,
1: I don't know, different scenarios where this might be the case. There's two avenues why anybody would come to the attention of the family courts. Um, The first is probably the most commonplace and that's through private um, arrangements. So in short, it might be that parents are separated and can't agree over contact or residence arrangements for the children. Um, And so they apply to court for the court to adjudicate on that and to make decisions in the best interest of the children. That becomes much more complicated when one party or both parties are making allegations about domestic violence, domestic abuse and the other type of abuse, parental alienation um, and those kind of matters, and that's when the court will ask a social worker to become involved to speak on behalf of the child and to undertake social work assessments of the family and or the child to really understand what's going to be in the child's best interests. Private law proceedings are very complicated, they are very challenging for birth parents, because. It's very unusual nowadays for people to be eligible to receive legal aid funding. That means that parents quite often have to represent themselves in an arena that is endlessly terrifying to most parents and may doubly so when you are facing a perpetrator of serious domestic abuse or other types of abuse and having to stand up in court to speak out about that in front of the perpetrator. Um, Family law for private matters is huge, there's lots of um, work being done around it to try and make it uh, more palatable or easier for parents to access, but the reality is it's an extremely challenging process and it takes a long time and it can be very traumatic for the parents and sometimes for the children as well to have to go through. Obviously, I can't offer legal advice. I'm I'm not legally trained in any way, shape or form, Um, but I know from experience that parents who access support from organisations like the NATP for domestic abuse charities and similar do a lot better because then they have that support network around them that helps them. It's always worth checking the legal aid qualification and looking at if you're going to be eligible for that. Because if you can access a solicitor, that's going to be infinitely more helpful than anything else. It takes so much of the strain out of things. Um, so private law is one aspect of um, the family courts. And then the other aspects of the family courts is public law. Those are matters whereby a local authority is so significantly concerned about a child or children that they apply to the court to oversee the case. In those cases, you're looking at a local authority saying that a child is either at risk of or has suffered such significant harm that they can't remain at home or there needs to be quite serious orders in place to keep the child safe. And those proceedings will sometimes result in children being placed in foster care or being removed to live with other family members while further assessments are undertaken. So I work in both of those formats. The the public law aspect of things: any parent, um, adoptive or birth parent, who comes into a public law arena with the local authority bringing matters to court, is automatically entitled to legal aid, and they will have a solicitor, and they will be able to access a barrister if they need to, um, and they will always have that representation. Obviously, some parents choose to represent themselves; it's absolutely their call. But I was always, I would always advise people to use the legal aid and to get. Get the proper legal representation. Um, Just on on that as well, if there are any families listening to this who are subject to care proceedings with local authority support, the local authority should always provide the family information at the beginning of the proceedings and that will include a list of local solicitors who can take the Um. case. So you shouldn't ever be left in a position where you're scrabbling around trying to find an appropriate solicitor. We can always help with that and helping people to find appropriate solicitors um, through the ATP if they need that for different areas. Um, The two two aspects, private law and family law and, and public law are very different. Now, what about your
0: role then? You mentioned earlier what you do. Can you give us a bit more detail about that?
1: Yeah, so in the um, private law arena, what the social worker role there uh, is more about is talking to parents, talking to the child, trying to get an understanding of the history and the future plans for the family, and then coming up with a recommendation for the court to say, I think this child ought to live here or these ought to be the contact arrangements or parents ought to undertake this work. To improve their parenting or to mitigate risks. Um, and then the judge or the magistrates will either agree with that recommendation or agree with it partially, um, and sometimes will ask for more information. So that's uh, a shorter piece of work, usually, that's very specific. Um, and it's very different to what happens in public care proceedings, public law care proceedings with local authority involvement. So the social worker role in public law um, in in family court where the local authority have initiated care proceedings is much more complex. So there's two main social worker roles in family law. One is the social worker who's working for the local authority, um, who's the child social worker, So that social worker will act as the voice of the local authority, presenting the local authority's views to the court, undertaking any assessments that are required of the family or the children, commonly parenting assessments and things like that. They will be the one visiting the child regularly, getting the child's wishes and views regularly. And then the other role of the social worker is independent to the local authority and that social worker will be looking at the care plans that the local authority are proposing, talking to the family and the children, but being able to feedback to the court if a plan is in a child's best interests and suggesting tweaks to that plan and keeping the plan uh, on track if needs be. So,
0: so it it does require you to to sort of do quite a deep dive, doesn't it, into a family's workings?
1: Absolutely, that's that's really what it's about. And really, if we're talking about serious matters such as where a child should live in either sets of proceedings or the contact that they should have with either set of parents in both sets of proceedings you need to be able to understand the family dynamics in great depth to be able to make those recommendations because the last thing anybody wants is to make the wrong decision for a child moving forward because that's that child's life and we just can't afford to make mistakes not for children. So once
0: people are involved in a family court case, how might they expect the whole
1: legal process to unfold? Well, stress. The first thing of it is it's hugely stressful, and I can't reiterate that enough. Um, If the local authority is planning to take a birth family or an adoptive family to court because they're so concerned about the child at home, the family should get lots of advance notification of it. So the process would start with what's called the public law outline meeting. And that happens with the local authority writing to the family, to the parents, and saying, please bring a solicitor to a meeting where we want to talk about your child. And then the mum and the dad, or the mum and the mum, or the dad and the dad, with their own solicitors, and with the local authority social worker, team manager and solicitor, will sit down and have a conversation about the local authority's worries and why the local authority are considering taking it to court. And that is then minuted, copies of the minutes are given to parents and kept on the local authority file and that's kind of an advance warning of the local authority taking the case to court and then the case will be listed and the parents will be able to be represented in court to present their view to the judge at whatever the time is. With private law, it's normally kickstarted by one of the parents making an application to court off their own back and then the other parent would receive notification of it, might receive a phone call from a social worker asking for their views um, and then they get notification of when the hearing is and when to present themselves and what they need to do for it. You mentioned that uh, in order to get
0: support parents can seek it from certain organisations like, for example, the NATP, which is, as we know, part of COECT. Can you give us a bit more help then to understand the kind of support that would be given
1: and um, certainly for the NATP, um, what we've been trying to do is ensure that um, if people ring us and they're looking for support with things like the family court, obviously we do not offer legal advice, that isn't something that's within our skill set, but we want people to feel empowered and that they have lots of information about the processes and uh, about what they can expect what we try and do is provide an empathic listening service so people can just offload because it is so stressful to be under that level of scrutiny have that fear that your children are going to be removed or something is going to be done to them or for them that you're not 100 percent in control of um, so providing that service where people can just offload is really beneficial but also someone like me can talk people through the process so they they know what to expect because If you think of it, A lot of the time, I mean, it's a bit different at the moment because we can't actually go to court. It's done remotely via teams or whatever, but going to court, there's a whole set of etiquette around dress, around language, around behaviours, how you present yourself that is just alien to the majority of parents and professionals, unless you work in that field. And I think if we're able to say to parents, okay, this is how you behave. When the judge comes into the room, you must stand up and bow your head. That sounds absurd. but. Knowing that just gives people, parents in particular, a little bit more sense of power that actually this isn't a completely alien process. They have a bit of an idea of what's going on because that takes away some of the unknown and some of the fear. And then people can more easily focus on the main business, which is making sure the children are safe. But there is so much going on when you first go to court that it's completely intimidating. And that's before you consider the stress of why you're there. So just being able to talk people through that process, a bit of handholding and assuring them that things are on the right track or making a suggestion for how they can work in a different way with a social worker or with their solicitor. Because a lot of the time, there's communication difficulties, and we can suggest ways that people can tweak those, um, give people some skills towards the, that kind of matter. I think all of that's really helpful as a package to just to empower people really.
0: And will the NATP give advice to parents no matter what the situation? If the parents are in a situation where domestic abuse or violence is, is part of the picture, um, will the NATP advise no matter what?
1: Yes, that's our plan. So far, we've always been able to speak to parents um, from a neutral point of view, taking on board that the children, we're, what, what we've worked really hard to maintain is that irrespective of wanting to support the parents, the children are at the core of what we're doing. So we will hold on to the ideal still that, children are, that the child's welfare is of the paramount importance. So we can offer advice to any parent, but it's always with the proviso of what you're telling us is your truth. We are conscious that things might be perceived differently by different people but we can offer you help to the best of our abilities and then moving forward because we're not passing judgment on anybody's situation or circumstance we're solely there to make sure that they are better informed about the process in these types of situations and are able to offload about the stress of it all.
0: So how can you then describe what's likely to be going through the minds of uh, people like you who are advising and making decisions about children's futures. What is it, in foremost in their minds, about what they want to achieve?
1: Well, I think foremost in my mind when I'm looking at um, cases in family courts, it's just about how we can make things safe for the child. Um, I don't know. I can't speak for all the social workers in the world, but certainly from my point of view, I try to always start from the premise that children should be with their families, unless we find it to be really unsafe. We can't make it safe for them, um, and that's the starting point for me because we know through lots of research that children do best when they they remain with their birth families, and that's for adoption or foster care as well. But unfortunately, there are times when it just simply isn't in the child's best interest because it's not safe enough for that to happen so it's the starting point of okay these are the risks with this family how can we make it safe enough is this parent prepared to do the work to make it safe enough What what's the resistance to that change Is there enough time for those changes to happen? Has the parent got capacity to make those changes? And just really unpicking all of those barriers to change and um, trying to see if it'll happen in the timescales for the child. So there's a lot of assessment that goes on, a lot of wondering, um, a lot of really reflective thinking about what we're missing, what are the gaps, how can we fill them? And obviously at the core, what does the child think about it all? And what does the child want? Because older children will always tell us and little children as well through their behaviours, what they want and need. And so balancing up the two things is a constant exercise of, of how do we make those two, the, those two things balanced to be equal and to be ready to meet each other.
0: Do you feel in your heart of hearts that the right decisions are always
1: reached? In the cases I'm involved in, 90% at the top, 99% of the time, yes, because I work really hard to make sure that that is the case and to listen to everybody. But I think from listening to colleagues across the country and from birth parents and adopters and foster carers, I think there are sometimes some really difficult moments where it feels like for one party or another that the right decision hasn't been made. And I think family courts are really complicated places and it's not... It's not very often that there's black and white decision making, it's finely nuanced in a lot of things. And then for a lot of people, that's really hard to understand. and to unpick, this is something that's really finely nuanced, but actually I'm a good parent, so why can't I have my child in my care? Trying to explain that to a parent who has a learning disability or who has significant mental health difficulties that are a real barrier to their parenting, they just can't understand it. And actually what we do see is a lot of birth parents who come into care proceedings, public um, law through the local authority, who themselves are traumatized children as adults. And so it's another trauma to them to have the child removed and taken off them and adopted or placed in foster care. And actually, it's just a repeating cycle of trauma to them that they can't escape from. And then to try and explain to them, well, actually, the mental health issues you've developed as an experience as a, as a result of your own childhood. That's the reason you can't have your child back. It's just such a, a, a horrible way to have to communicate with someone to explain to them that that's the sad reality that it's sometimes impossible for that parent to understand it and get their heads around it. So then you ultimately get people saying the family courts don't work for me. They've made the wrong decision because it's a finely nuanced decision that's based on more than just are you a good parent or a bad parent? Um, and it does feel it does feel punitive, I think, to a lot of to a lot of parents who go through that system because there's nowhere to hide. Every aspect of your life is scrutinised. GP records are sought, mental health records, police records, reports from all the professionals involved in your family's life. So there's hair strand testing, if there's drugs and alcohol concern, blood tests for, for alcohol misuse. So you're really looking at a thorough assessment of, of a parent's life or a family's life, um, which leaves people feeling really vulnerable and exposed. So it's not, it's not a pleasant experience to go through if you're the parent on the receiving end of it, which is why it generates so much stress.
0: And how long then do you think this, this whole setup can take from start to finish?
1: Well the case law on how long care proceedings should last is really clear Um, and the guidance for this now is well it's not guidance it's legislation is saying that care proceedings should only last for six months because to in the old days before we had this in place sometimes care proceedings were dragging on for two three years and actually if you're talking about a child who's a newborn baby and then it's a toddler by the end of it they've spent their whole lives under under scrutiny and it's it's not inducive to positive childhood. So um, the 26 week rule came in six months and we all do our best to try and stick to that. There are exceptions to the rule of course. Um, If you have if you have to stop things to get to the bottom of how a child sustained an injury, inevitably that will take a good piece of time by the time you talk to experts, get expert reports in, and then arrange a hearing for all of that, which can take two to three weeks sometimes. Um, and the other, the other issue that delays things sometimes is if you have a parent or parents with significant additional needs, or if you have parents with English as an additional language who need interpreters, it means that the actual physical time a hearing would take is longer because you're having to stop so that things could be interpreted into whatever the parent's original language, home language is, or if the parent has significant learning needs or mental health needs, that the advocate can explain what's going on and ensure that the parent is um, up to date with what's happening in front of them. So that would, I don't know, instead of having perhaps an hour or two hour hearing, you might end up having a hearing that lasts four or six hours to make sure that all that communication is happening so that can delay things because you need more time to do things.
0: And during all this time will the children necessarily remain with the family um, that's going through the whole court hearing process?
1: totally depends on the case and how it came in in the first instance. So some children will come in and will already be in foster care. So the case will be presented to court and the child will already be in foster care, whether by agreement with the parent or due to an emergency, because the thing I think there's a common misconception that social workers can just remove children. It's There's no legal statute that allows for a social worker to walk into someone's house or school and walk out with a child. Social workers just don't have that power. The only um, professional body that has that sort of power is the police. They have um, a particular um, power Called the police powers of protection. If they walk into a situation and find a child to be at risk of harm uh, or a child in a conditions that are not suitable or safe for them to live in or stay in, they can, any police officer, Bobby on the beat, any, any ranking officer can do this. They can call their police powers of protection and walk out with the child. They will then liaise with the local authority and place the child in local authority care and that order lasts for 72 hours, which is usually sufficient for the local authority to then either assess what's going on with the family, um, place the child with great granny or back with parents if that's deemed appropriate or ask the parents to clean up or whatever, or take the matter to court. So some children will be already in that process when the local authority bring the matter to court. sometimes the children will already be placed with great aunt, great uncle, because the parents recognise that they are struggling or the parents are in mental health crisis and have placed the child somewhere safe. Um, But something needs to be done to scaffold that arrangement um, to make it more durable. Um, And sometimes children are removed after that first hearing. So it's the variations of what can happen at that first hearing are are very are very huge because the options are vast, and actually generally what the plan is is to try and place children or keep them with their parents if we can or place them with wider family members if it's safe and then foster care if we haven't got any other options left
0: well Thank you, Baza. That's that's been really helpful, certainly in helping me to understand how the whole process works, and I'm sure everyone else. And it really points up the important work that that you and your colleagues are doing. So many thanks. To find out more about COECT and to access help, please visit www.coect.co.uk or head straight for the Facebook page, where you can get answers 24-7, including at weekends and on public holidays. The Facebook link is either at the end of the Daily Bulletin, emailed by COECT to you, or in the show notes to this podcast episode. The podcast is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and lots more. Find us on one of those sites and you'll also find the subscribe button to press to automatically receive this podcast every week. We'd love you to leave a review for the podcast on one of those sites. It'll help other people find us and find all our helpful advice. Bye for now.